Welcome. It's great to see you. I've got problems with this thing falling off at the moment, so uh, let's see if I can stick it on. There we go. Welcome. It's great to see you. If you're a guest here today, I want to extend a, a warm welcome to you. It's great to have you here with us. My name's Colin, and we're going to be back in the book of Mark today, following on in our series, A Journey with Jesus, looking at Mark chapter 8. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you can turn to that, and in a moment we're going to be going to that. I just want to say that actually in the 9th of December, so just a couple of weeks' time, which I'm still getting my head around, we're just talking about Christmas, it's coming. Um, 9th of December, we're going to have baptisms here, and so there's a couple of people already who are going to get baptised, which is fantastic, praise God. But if you are uh, you are interested in getting baptised, I'd love it if you could come and maybe speak to me, or to Greg, or to James after this meeting, and we would love to talk you, to you more about that. <clears throat> Apparently, kids... Children ask 125 questions a day. 125. I mean, I think personally with four young children, that's probably on the low side, if anything. To be honest, I get questions the minute I wake up to that blissful, wonderful bedtime moment. You know, you can picture the scene. I've often done it. I've been lying in bed. And there's a feeling, and there's a little bit of a heaviness on me. And I suddenly open my eyes, and here is one of them asking me, when's it time to wake up, Daddy? When's it time? Well, or the dreaded why question. Why, Daddy? Why, Daddy? Why? I don't know most of the time. When you, um, we recently, some friends of ours really kindly gave us one of these Amazon Fire Stick things. You stick in the back of your TV and you get a few extra channels and stuff. And um, my kids discovered on this that you, if you press the button and hold it down, you can ask it questions. And you can ask it all sorts of things. And so I come in and I find them asking them all the basic questions like, what's the weather and all that sort of stuff. They're loving it. And the other day they were saying, are you a boy? Are you a girl? Are you married? And they're asking all these things. So when they get fed up with asking me, I've got another option now. Adults, adults on the other hand, apparently we ask about six a day. So somewhere between childhood and adulthood, we lose 119 questions. It's pretty interesting. Well, we're going to hear today, Jesus asked the most important question that we can ask. There's loads of questions that we need to ask. Loads of important things. Some of them are small, some of them are insignificant, some are daily things that we ask, and some are big and deep and life-changing Often we can ask the wrong questions, but the right questions help us to reflect and adapt and move on. Questions can help us to see more clearly. Sometimes we don't want to ask those questions because the things that they reveal, we might not want to answer. We might not want to face. So we ignore them and we bury our heads in the sand, but we need to ask questions. Our culture is asking questions. Who am I? Me? The identity? The songwriters of our day, or the poets of our day, I should say, the songwriters, are asking those things. And when they find them, they're declaring them defiantly. This is me. If you've seen The Greatest Showman, you'll know what I mean by that song. I just want to say it's a great film. It's a great song. But this is me. It's quite defiant. Who am I? It's a question that our culture starts with. What defines us? Our work or our bank account? or our looks, or our sexuality, or our status? What's our label? The thing that we're defined by. Can feel the security and the significance and the acceptance that we crave inside. Who are we? I searched for the answers to that question. I looked for it in things, and in substances, and in reputation, in relationships, and they were all found wanting. I didn't get the answers that I was so wanting, and so I suffered the worries from that. Or every time I got there, they changed. 
bit like the horizon, you set off for it, but you can't get there because it keeps moving. Jesus asks the most important question that we can answer. Because if our answers to those questions can change, they can't provide that security and that significance and that acceptance that we need. It can be blocked by someone or something else. But this question is not who we are, it's who is he. And his question cut to the heart of the culture then and it does now. Because it changes everything and it's not firstly about us. But the wonderful truth is that in its answer, our true identity is found. Unlike other answers, this will satisfy us and give us the security, the acceptance and the significance that we deeply need. But it's not just our words he wants, it's our hearts. It's personal. He says in this question, who do you say that I am? Not your spouse, not your friends, your parents, but you. Who do you say that I am? Who are you trusting in? Do you know Jesus? Do you Not about him, but know him. There's an invitation this morning. Before I met Jesus, I knew stuff about him. I'd heard stuff, but I didn't know him. Lots of us here do know him. It's great, praise God, but don't switch off. Because the disciples, they walked with him, they had done stuff with him, and they'd seen plenty of things. But he challenged some of their long-held views. So it's for us all. This book, Mark, as we've been going through over the last few months, we um, <clears throat> gradually reveals Jesus as the long-awaited king, the Messiah that was promised right at the beginning in the Old Testament. And the Jewish people that this crowd was, this story was too, um, they were waiting for a saviour. But he wasn't how people thought that he should look when he came. And it's no different today. Jesus is not what people think he should look like. He's the good teacher. He's wise and moral. The prophet. The helper of the poor and the needy. Or the Christmas season Jesus. The baby tucked up in the manger. Safe and nice and tolerant. In this passage, Jesus reveals, as we're going to see, aspects of himself that help us to see him before he revealing who he is. And it demands our all in response. Let's have a look at chapter 8. It should come up on the screen as well. I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he direct, directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthua. This is a case of deja vu, right? We've already seen this type of miracle just two chapters before in Mark 6. The more famous feeding of the 5,000, actually. And it's amazing because it shows Jesus' compassion for people, his genuine heartfelt love for people. 
He says, I have compassion on the crowd. He cares for them. Literally like their most basic needs, food. He doesn't act the, the celebrity talker of our day who uh, looking to wow the crowds but actually not really interested in their, in their lives. Or not the shallow love that we speak of but actually a love that carries the burdens that we carry. He wants to provide and satisfy them. He wants to care for them. The feeding of the 5,000, that's the story that gets the most mentions. You don't really need to be a Christian to, to know that story. But actually, in terms of the actual miracle, this was the far more incredible one witnessed here, location-wise. Biblical scholars, and you can clearly see that I'm not one of those, say that this was nowhere near any towns or villages, location-wise. So it's a statement of absolute impossibility to feed this crowd. In the previous one, the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd was actually closer to villages and towns. So the disciples, they may have thought actually in their heads that there might have been a way. It was an actual miracle, but there might have been a way that people could have been fed, perhaps by being sent to the villages and towns. The disciples had seen this miracle, and still they're asking questions because they were in a wilderness. Verse 4 says, desolate place. Desolate, barren, and lifeless. And though they'd seen this miracle before, let's get it straight, in their minds, this was an absolute impossibility. There was nothing they could do. They couldn't send people home. It was far too far. They would faint. That's what we've read. And they couldn't just go and pick some apples from the local orchard or some, some blackberries from the brambles all around them. There was no natural way of sorting this out. But still, they had actually seen this before. And I love reading the disciples' responses because they make me feel a lot better about myself. I recommend it to you. Read through them as often as you can. I'm not sure that's the best way of reading the Bible, but still, it makes me feel better. They say in verse 4, how can one feed? I mean, seriously, hello guys. You've been with Jesus. You've seen him do this before. Not that long ago either. It was literally only a very short amount of time ago. They get things wrong and they forget things all the time. It's funny and it's reassuring. In my previous job as a firefighter, I got things wrong a lot. When I first started, we, uh, one of my first jobs was this job where it was a fire in an estate agent. And the, we got there and the fire was punching out. And there was, wasn't many ways in at the time. We couldn't get in in the front. And I was keen to try and, you know, earn my place on my watch. I wanted to earn my place. So I said, yeah, grab the sledgehammer. Went running around the back of the building. Follow me, follow me. Everyone's following around there. Find a door. And I went out of that door. And I smashed that door. I mean, I smashed that door completely. There was nothing left of it. And I said proudly, in you go, lads. It's in there. Putting the sledgehammer back over my size. Flexing my muscles a bit. Feeling very proud. And when they came out a few minutes later saying, wrong door, mate. I wasn't quite so proud. I got it wrong. So I just want to recommend reading the disciples because they make you feel a lot better about yourself. They forget stuff. The disciples forgot. But what about us? How many times do we read that Jesus provides for us? He says, don't worry about these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And yet we panic when we get into financial difficulties. Or we hold stuff up, money, things, whatever it may be, to keep us safe. For the disciples who were Jewish, I mean, bread in the desert was not really an out there kind of concept for them. This was a part of their Jewish history. They got manna from heaven or bread from the sky. 
God miraculously providing for his people for 40 years in the wilderness. They would have been brought up with those stories and known them very well. What stories have we got so familiar with that we stop us from seeing clearly? Jesus was reenacting that miracle, the miracle of bread from heaven, to demonstrate something about him. Something to point to a part of who he is and what he had come to do. Jesus, the bread of heaven. Mark doesn't just say that they needed food here. He could have. But he mentions bread specifically. The most basic and sustaining of foods. Jesus, the provider. This was what he was showing. The one who provides for all of our deepest needs. Who satisfies and sustains us. And who cares for us. Jesus felt compassion for the people. That's no small thing. Because the words here literally mean he was moved in his bowels for them. Or gutted for them in another way. And in our need today, he sees us and he loves us. And he sees our difficulties. And he can change things. He can make a way where there seems an impossibility in our desolate places. Jesus loves people. And he cares for all of our needs. Not just our spiritual ones. He cares for our physical needs too. This miracle would have been talked about everywhere. And as disciples, they just don't get it. But Mark 6.52 gives us a clue. It says, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It's not just a a memory problem. It's not just a natural thing. It's It's not a head knowledge. It's a heart knowledge. It's hardened hearts. We need the Spirit to come and open our hearts. The problem isn't our understanding. The problem is our hearts. Who do you say that I am? Let's read the next bit, 11 to 13. It says, The Pharisees or the religious rulers came and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and he got into the boat again and went to the other side. This miracle of the feeding of the 4,000, it was massive. And it would have been talked about everywhere, all around. So a sign actually had been given. It caused the religious leaders who knew their Bibles, or what they had of it, the Old Testament, the, the, all the promises of a saviour coming, it caused them to attack Jesus. These leaders were the ones who would have observed strict traditions, taught people. They were religious. They were outwardly good, outwardly holy people, knowledgeable So they would have, in other words, gone to church and known their Bibles. But their hearts were hard. And they came and said to Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one? Because Jesus, you don't really look like what we think the one should look like. Because we were looking for someone else. We were looking for a strong warrior like King David of old, who's going to come and deliver us with might. Or we might say, Jesus, we were looking for the one who could answer all our intellectual questions that we had. Or answer the questions as to why that happened to that loved one. Or take away our problems in life. Why am I still struggling with this issue even though I'm a Christian? Or we might be looking for a smooth-talking celebrity who's popular and tolerant. Prove it, Jesus, they say. They had their ideas and Jesus didn't look like those. Or really, he wasn't what they wanted. They had seen Jesus' miracles, healing people, casting out demons. They had seen him heal the the lepers and the paralysed, the diseased. 
And if they had been humble enough to take a break from their own self-centered busyness, they would have seen him feeding the 5,000 earlier. There's plenty of signs. But their hearts were hard and they were full of their own ideas. There was lots of godly activity, but hearts far from him. Because we can hear his words and we can do stuff for him. We can go to church, we can lead a church, but still not see. There's a very challenging uh, verse in Matthew 7.22 that says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Loads of stuff. Busy, busy, busy. And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. They were waiting for a king, these Pharisees. But what sort of a king? It was one that looked like them. Do what we want, Jesus. Fulfill our dreams and then we'll follow you. Be a God in our image or in other words, an idol. We might say, give me my health first. Security at work or make this situation work out well and then I'll give you everything. I just need the house. I just need the massive church. Whatever it is that we're really living for. Could be really good things in life, noble things. Where our hearts are, there are our treasuries. He wants our hearts. He wants to be our treasure. And Jesus sighs in this verse, verse 12. And that really strikes me. Jesus feels deeply. It's important because it's a pained sigh. He cries within, oh, you can't see me, can you? You're blind and you're lost and you're living for idols of your own making. You're in a desolate place, a wilderness, and you're desperately in need of the true bread from heaven that will sustain you. Those things that you're living for and seeing, they won't satisfy you. We might look good, follow the rules, read our Bibles, fast, attend church, be kind to others. Good things, really good things, but they can't save us. Where's your heart? Who do you say he is? And Jesus feels pain at their hard hearts and our hard hearts. Because he sees the heart and not the performance. And idols can't feel compassion for us. He knows that hearts can't change themselves. Not by good works. Not by signs being performed. Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead, lost in the trespasses and sins in which, which we once walked. Basically unable to change. Jesus sighs, but God... He longs for people to see who he is. He longs for us to, longs for us. He sighs because he loves and because he's come to save and change our hearts. He sighs because he knows what it is that he has to do in order to do that. And it's not the signs. It's not the partial things. It's a far greater than that. He knows the suffering that he must go through to change the hardness of hearts. He's already given those signs. And he's saying now is the time for decision. And he leaves them. We need to decide. We can't save ourselves, not at the start, not throughout, or at the end. I think Jesus leaves deeply saddened by what he sees in their heart. Talk won't change him. Good works, nice people, dazzling signs from heaven. He says, who do you say that I am? Let's read 14 to 21. I love this bit. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, because of the, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. I just love that. I just want to note that. They've just come from the 4,000, feeding the 4,000. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? 
Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Again, I've already said this, the disciples are so ordinary and I find it refreshing. They've been with Jesus, they're watching all this stuff and yet they're panicking in the boat over what they're going to eat. I mean, like, they've literally just seen this miracle. I mean, seriously. But again, we laugh. But how often do we forget the things that Jesus has done in our lives? Or the ways in which he's come through for us time and time again? So we need to remind ourselves, like we were doing earlier, remind ourselves and each other, because we're not actually so different. The numbers on the baskets are significant. The 12 baskets that they're talking about, the feeding of the 5,000, they were meant to show that God's grace will go out to all the 12 tribes of Israel because that was a mostly Jewish crowd. Most Jews there wouldn't have had a problem with him saying that. But here in the feeding of the 4,000, the number seven is mentioned. And this crowd was actually a different crowd, different group from the previous one. This was uh, not a Jewish crowd, but a mostly made up of foreigners. And so Jesus was revealing something amazing to his disciples here, that he offers the bread of life to all peoples, not just the Jewish people. It was a demonstration of God's desire to grant the bread of heaven, his sustenance to every nation of the world, every nation stepping into his story. It's a bit of history, but the seven baskets actually represent the seven nations that had been driven out of the promised land by the Jewish people in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. You can read it there. The point being that Jesus was revealing God's grace to all nations, not just the Jews, and to show the reconciliation of all peoples into God's family. This is what God's family should look like. Where there was division, Jesus comes to bring unity again. The divisions that separate us, one from another, regardless of background, class, age, race, whatever, those divisions are rooted in sin. They're sinful barriers that separate us from one another. And Jesus has come to break every barrier. Are we seeing clearly? Let's read 22 to 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on him again, on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent them to him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. They've hold and covered healing so helpfully a couple of weeks ago. And as we, as we see here, Jesus heals. Healing is for today. If you're sick, we can pray again today. I'm not going to cover, <clears throat> I'll go over that ground again today, but I absolutely believe we should see more signs and healing today in the UK than we do. It's happening around the world. You've just got to read some of the accounts that are happening in China at the moment under massive persecution. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except that what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles or the nations to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. But I want to focus upon what this miracle is revealing to us because it's the pinnacle of chapter 8. Jesus loves people. 
He wants to provide. He wants to win our hearts and heal our diseases. He also always has an eye on the bigger picture. His purpose. This this miracle, it's a two-stage miracle. It's frankly odd, really, when you read it. And it reminds me of some of the crazy stories that you read about the preacher and faith healer Smith Wigglesworth in the early 1900s. Like incredible stuff happening all around him. But it was really out there stuff, really bold, but weird. And you read some of the crazy accounts and you think, actually, this guy would have probably just got locked up today in our culture. There's this story about... I love about Smith Wigglesworth and he had gone and done his grocery shopping and he was just walking back home and he saw a man across the street and the man was sort of downcast, sad and he went across and said, what's up? And the man said, well, my wife's dying. She's been told there's nothing left to do. She's in the hospital surrounded by doctors but there's nothing left to, that can happen. And he was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not having that. So he didn't know this man. He said, well, take me to her. So he went to the hospital and he had his groceries with him and he took hold of a, a bottle of olive oil and the verses of anointing the sick with oil and he walked up to where all these doctors were and all these people and he just pulled the cork off the bottle in front of everyone and starts pouring the oil all over her in front of them. Now the last time I was in a hospital praying with someone else um, for someone who was ill, we got the olive oil, it's a very small bottle, and we got the olive oil out and just as we were about to um, put some on her, the doctor came in and the look on his face was like, do I need to call security? What are these guys doing with this oil on this person? But Smith Wigglesworth, he didn't mind that, he didn't care, he just poured it liberally all over her face, all over her and you know what? Jesus healed her in that moment and she was saved. It's amazing. Well, Jesus spat on this man's eyes. It's pretty out there again, isn't it? Have you ever tried doing that to anyone? Gone up the high street? I'm going to stick on and pray for you and spat on them. I haven't. Great if you have. Tell me about it, please. This uh, miracle, though, is so important and it brings this whole chapter together. It's two-stage. There's no way that Jesus wasn't able to do this first time. I don't buy that. Jesus could have healed this man in one go. This is two-stage for a purpose. Jesus spits on his eyes and he lays his hands on him and then he asks the question, do you see anything? He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. In other words, he sees partially. The 4,000 people that were fed, they see partially. Give us the bread. Jesus, the provider. The Pharisees, knowing that one was coming to save them with all these promises, they're demanding a sign. They're seeing partially. And us, Jesus the good man, the teacher of a good way to live, the social activist, the compassionate for the poor and needy. I see people like trees. Jesus, saviour, but not Lord. Jesus, the rule giver. Jesus, who's nice to know, but can't actually do anything. Can't change circumstances. I see people like trees. And he prayed again, and he said he saw everything clearly. I think Jesus wants to come and open some of our eyes today to see everything clearly. To see him maybe for the first time or to see him as he actually is. Verses 27 to 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Don't know if that's right. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? He asked that question. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered them, him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
the disciples, they said the Christ. But they were thinking still in human ways. And it needed correcting. Does our thinking. Who do people say that I am? Do you notice that all through this book, Mark, we've seen Jesus actually stopping people and demons from declaring who he is. He's ordered demons not to speak. People who have been healed, he's asked not to speak out. And now he's asking the question. There's a turning point in this chapter where the mystery of Jesus is being revealed. Jesus doesn't just blurt it out. He's gentle. He asks questions. He draws things out of people. What have you worked out from what you've seen? Questions draw out the heart. What's in it? What were you taught and can say? What verses can you say from memory? What have you just started to take for granted? What have you forgotten about me? Jesus says, what do they say? Other people. Because we find it far easier maybe to answer for others. What other someone else thinks. It leaves us a little bit less exposed, a little bit less vulnerable. And the disciples answer, they say, John the Baptist and Elijah and one of the prophets. In other words, they're saying the new player in town. Part of the long list of heroes who've come and gone and doing their bit to further God's mission on the earth. But Jesus doesn't accept others' views. He wants our hearts, not just opinions. He says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? He comes back to this because he wants us to answer it today. Jesus is about to reveal that he is the culmination of history. He's the son of God, not just a bit player in the story. He's the one that the story is all about. Not one who comes and goes, but one who changes absolutely everything. The saviour of the world. The question is the most important question that we can answer in our lives. And Peter the blunt disciple jumps straight in there, two-footed as he always does. Our greatest weaknesses are sometimes our greatest strengths. Peter speaks before he thinks when he says stuff, but he speaks up when others should. He says, you are the Christ. The Christ. But they had their own ideas still of who the Christ was and what he was about to do to restore them as a people. Free them from the oppression of the Romans that were oppressing them at the time. It was limited. And it was man's ideas. And it was, Jesus was exposing and opening their eyes fully. Restoring their spiritual sight. Verses 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again and he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him but turning and seeing his disciples he rebuked Peter and he said get behind me Satan for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man he began to teach Jesus not as they thought Christ crucified for the sins of the world he told them there was and there is no other way there's no good works of mine that could pay for the sin. It's his good work. It's an utter work of the grace of God to pay the price for our sin completely. It's finished, Jesus said on the cross. He suffered in our place for all of our sin and our guilt and our shame. And he died the death that I deserve. He was forsaken and separated from God in my place. The separation from God that brought worries and fears and anxieties and he walked the perfect life in my place the one that I've tried and failed to reach this is Jesus 
the Christ who was crucified for my sin. And Peter gets his arm around Jesus again here and tries to advise him, even here, on what Jesus' mission should be. No, it's not quite that, Jesus. But he's thinking in the ways of men. We might advise people, it's all about being a good person and following the rules. That'll see us through. Or I was saved by grace, but now I'm really making a massive effort. Really trying to strive. There's a complete work that's already done. A work that lasts and calls us to rest in. His grace was not a once only thing, but a once and for all. Crossless Christianity is not Christianity, it's not. There's an enemy who hates the knowledge of this truth, who wants eyes to remain blind or even more subtly, very happy for eyes to see people like trees, to see partially, to see Jesus as something other than how he reveals himself. Jesus is ready. He says, get behind me, Satan. We don't get to decide who Jesus is. He reveals himself. Here is our God who suffered and did what we could never do to win and change our hard hearts. God is looking for hungry and thirsty people like those 4,000. He calls out and he offers himself to us in the desolate places, in our searching. Maybe for the first time, but for all of us. Because you don't stop needing bread, sustenance. You need it daily. You need, his grace is for us daily. He's the one who will provide for our deepest needs. To be forgiven and made right with the holy God who made us. The sin that separates us from God, the uncleanness inside, he's dealt with that on the cross. Jesus, the bread of heaven, who will keep on offering and giving over and over again because he's not stingy. He's a lavish, generous God. He's calling us to come and wash in repentance and feast in his truth right now. Come feast because there's a promise for every tear. He's won for us an acceptance with God an acceptance that's not based upon our performance, but it is. You can't add to it, so we've got to stop trying. Because Jesus has won for us freedom. Freedom from our past, the guilt and the baggage, the pain and the shame. He's taken it upon himself. And he will carry our burdens. He cares for us. Now, he doesn't take all our problems away. But he does promise to walk with us through them all. I'll never leave or forsake you. You're not alone. In every circumstance, we can know who Jesus is and we can hear his loving voice. That's a promise from the God who never lies. Freedom from the wrong questions to identity, wrong answers to identity questions. The answers that have tied us up, confused us, not given us the lasting peace that they promised. Freedom from unsatisfying things, even good things. And in Jesus, we find our true identity. It's in Christ children of God and sons and daughters loved with an everlasting love and chosen by him members of God's family and nothing can separate us from God's love the love in Christ identity is found and released in Jesus freedom from lies that we might have believed maybe for about ourselves maybe for many years you can know true peace because he's the one who gives it he gives us security and significance and purpose forevermore. And his work lasts forever. It's unchanging. Jesus offers this to all who will turn and believe. And he wants to take us out of the desolate places, out of the wilderness of searching for answers, for searching for life. And he promises to end our restlessness and the anxieties that they bring. What could be of greater importance? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, 
Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Who do you say that I am? It's of first importance. It's not a nice question on the side. He made a way. This scripture was read out early in worship at Ephesians 2. It says, but God, that's the sigh of Jesus, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, lost in our trespasses, sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Out of death comes life. He gives us the gift of his son, Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to come and open our eyes. This is a spirit thing, born of the spirit. Just like the blind man in the two-stage miracle, some maybe fully for the first time, others who are seeing people walking like trees, seeing partially. He wants to open them fully so that we can look to Jesus, Hebrews 12. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in all authority, reigning. What a name. Jesus, the name above every name. And there must be a response to his answer because it cost Jesus everything. Could the band come back up, please? Perhaps you don't know Jesus today and, we've been, and you've been looking for answers elsewhere. You've asked the questions, you've looked for answers. Jesus wants to offer himself to you, a relationship with him. He wants to give you the thing that will never change with the different circumstances of our lives. He wants to end your search and to give you that which will always satisfy, to stop restlessness inside and to bring you in out of the wilderness. Jesus wants to come and be the foundation of our lives. A foundation that won't sink or crack like driveways do and to take every bit of weight, the weight of our lives. To give you the bread that will fill you up and never run out. To take away the past baggage and heal the hurts. There's nothing that we've done that can't be forgiven. He wants to open our eyes today. For others, he wants to open our eyes fully from seeing partially a bit like the blind man's two-stage miracle. Perhaps we've forgotten the completeness of the work that he's done. We've forgotten that we can rest in his grace now. That we can't add to the cross. We've been busy, busy, busy doing things for him. But somewhere we've lost the enjoyment of our salvation and the relationship with him. He's inviting you now to come and rest in him. And to come and enjoy walking with him in his grace knowing that his loving mercies are new every morning and that his faithfulness to us is not like ours, it never changes. And to know that, again, he's fathering of us, children, not servants, come and sit at his feet and that he is good and loves you just as you are, just as you are. But he doesn't want us to remain as we are. He wants to come and fill us with his Holy Spirit freshly to give us all the resources that we need to live the life that he has for us. One that's actually full of adventure and full of purpose and full of significance. He wants to open our eyes again that he is after a relationship with us and that he isn't a genie who gives us all that we want. But he does give us all that we need. To those in need, he can make a way. He's the God of the impossible. Where there's real difficulty, he doesn't want you to face it alone. 
and he can heal our diseases, perhaps from long-standing issues. We can pray again tonight, today. Finally, following Jesus is costly. It costs Jesus everything to make a way. And to follow him, there must be a dying to old, old life and old habits that aren't right. Because he's the crucified Messiah. He wants our all, not just the, the part that we can spare. We think we can spare. He wants our whole hearts. What things do we need to throw off and freshly commit to following him today? Are there things that even now the Holy Spirit might be nudging us about? Things that maybe have subtly taken the place that Jesus should have. Whatever that may be, we're going to respond in song and in prayer. Because he's coming back for his people. He's coming back for his bride, the glorious church. The people of God that he is adding through to from all peoples and all nations and all classes. Those all around us here in Sikup and families and workplaces. And he's the one who's perfecting us day by day in his grace and care. Who do we say he is?